This show is made possible entirely by listeners just like you. To donate to or become a member of the show, please visit bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, Citizen Radio, Le Show, The Progressive, Slate.com, The Young Turks, The Bugle, and Countdown with Keith Olbermann with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Rachel Maddow Show. We will con- continue the existing moratorium and suspend the issuance of new permits to drill new deep water wells for six months. We will suspend action on 33 deep water exploratory wells currently being drilled in the Gulf of Mexico. That was President Obama announcing a moratorium on new deep water drilling in the Gulf. It seemed like a very sensible response to the Deepwater Horizon disaster, and the reasoning was clear. While the technology exists to drill at 5,000 feet, we have absolutely no clue what to do and how to do it when something goes wrong. Tomorrow, BP plans to send down the containment dome to cover one of the two remaining leaks. But this has never been tried before at 5,000 feet under the sea. Rice University professor Satish Nagaraja says this has never been tried in water so deep. I hope it works. It it has not uh, been used at that depth before. These vessels started the long-awaited top kill procedure this afternoon, a maneuver never tried before a mile beneath the sea. A mile beneath the sea is, we have learned, a very difficult, dangerous place to drill for oil. But we must still meet our energy needs, right? So what's the alternative? Shallow water drilling? Drilling for oil at shallower depths means that when an oil spill does occur, we have the technology and know-how to immediately cap the spill. Like the one that occurred Tuesday off the southern Louisiana coast. A barge collided with an abandoned wellhead in Barataria Bay, releasing an unknown amount of oil and gas into the Gulf. But don't worry, remember, shallow water, we'll just cap it immediately and, oh, except it's going to take another 10 to 12 days to actually cap that well. Which sort of makes you reconsider whether drilling in shallow water really is the kinder, gentler way to get our oil. Environmental safety issues don't just fade away once the oil is taken out of the seabed or the ground. It still has to travel around the country, often by pipeline, like the 30-inch pipeline in Marshall, Michigan that burst on Monday. The Environmental Protection Agency estimates that more than one million gallons of oil may have spilled into the Kalamazoo River. There's got to be a better, less environmentally disastrous way to meet our energy needs. What about natural gas? It's got the word natural right there in the name, right? An easy-to-access natural gas source, as easy-to-access natural gas sources dry up, drillers increasingly turn to a a process called hydraulic fracturing, or fracking. They pump highly pressurized water, sand, and some mysterious mixture of chemicals into the ground to force the gas up. But you know what's also in the ground? Water. Water we drink. In the HBO documentary Gasland, one gentleman showed to great effect that maybe, just maybe, some of that natural gas made its way into his water supply. I'm no engineer, but I am pretty sure you're not supposed to be able to light your water on fire. But fracking has its defenders, like the 18 Republicans in the Colorado state legislator who sent a letter to the EPA demanding the agency not regulate fracking, no matter what. Okay, so deep water drilling is dangerous, shallow water drilling is dangerous, moving oil around the country is dangerous, getting natural gas out of the ground is probably dangerous, and don't even get me started on coal. 
Joining us now is Michael Clare, Professor of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, and he's author of the book Rising Powers, Shrinking Planet, The New Geopolitics of Energy. Professor Clare, thanks so much for joining me tonight. It's my pleasure, Chris. Well, you know, it seems to me one of the points you make in the book that I think is so affecting is just the fact that we have, it, you argue that this is what things are going to look like from now on because we've gotten the easy energy. Is that right? That's right. I mean, we've been extracting oil and natural gas and coal for a very long time now, and it's a natural process. You go for the easy stuff first. The wells that are close to the surface, close inshore, easy to extract geologically, and in safe, friendly countries. And most of that has now been used up. So what's left is the tough stuff. It's deep underground, far offshore, in geologically complex formations like shale rock, and in unsafe and unfriendly countries. And we have no choice. Those are the only places left to go. So what are some of the most extreme examples of, of, of the lengths to which we are now going to get these, these difficult-to-reach resources? Well, you began, of course, with BP in the Gulf of Mexico. We've been going into ever greater depths of water to get at oil and natural gas, a mile, be two miles, and increasingly this is where the oil companies are looking because you, you spoke of coastal water before, but most of the inshore oil fields have now been depleted, so it's only deep offshore that we have left. Or we go further north into the Arctic, and there are lots of plans to drill in the Arctic region, but this is a very environmentally fragile area, and any oil spill that occurred there would have devastating consequences for wildlife. You know, it seems the problem, right, is that even if we start to ramp up innovation along alternative energies and we try to get that stuff to scale, we're going to still need coal and we're still going to need natural gas and we're still going to need oil. You know, what do we do now in that interim while we're being forced into these, these kind of dangerous processes? Well, this all assumes that we, we need ever more huge quantities of energy. And that has always been the assumption that we need to provide more and more and more energy uh, year after year. And if you go on that assumption, yes, we're going inevitably to be drawn to tough coal and to tough oil and to fracking, as you said before. We have to reach a point where we say we can't continue to grow the energy supply, we have to invest instead in efficiency, in conservation, in using public transportation so that we don't need so much energy. This is the only way we can make the transition from the dangerous energy options we have today to safer, uh, more climate-friendly energy options of the future. Just as I
So Obama, one of his big promises when he became president was he said, remember that asshole that had this job before me who didn't acknowledge scientists and their facts? Well, that's going to change. I remember that. And now scientists have... I also remember I was very surprised he said asshole. Yeah, that was shocking. But I do remember that. Do you remember that George cocksucker Bush? (laughs) So uh, now the scientists have gotten together and they're kind of like... Well, what are you going to do to embrace us? Because you said all these nice things, but he hasn't actually made any concrete policy like acknowledging science 2010 bill or anything like that. (laughs) Right, right, right. So they're a little concerned, and here's why that's really dangerous. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just picturing the bill with just a happy scientist with like a test tube and a big smile. Is it uh, clip art from Word documents? Yes. Yeah, that's what I'm picturing as well. So, um, this is why it's really, really dangerous, because NASA just released some figures today, Jamie Kilstein. NASA does that often. They do. That's all they do, actually. Are their figures like Obama's speech? Are they like, I got some motherfucking facts for you? No, it's a little drier than that. This is all NASA does. They release reports and make people not care about space travel. Oh, okay. That's what NASA does. So, for the first half of 2010... uh, it's been the hottest season on record. Yeah. So this is really important because do you remember, Jamie, when there was like a couple blizzard storms a few months ago and everyone was like, where's that global warming we've heard so much about right. because they're confusing weather and climate because they're morons? Right. I remember that. This Barack Obama actually said that. He was like, you fucking morons don't know the difference between weather and Right. Yeah, I remember that. But this time we're actually talking about the climate. Which is the temperature of the Earth. Would you quote Johan Hari from our wonderful program, Citizen Radio, and what he said about climate change? Because I think that really puts it in perspective. Oh, yeah. Well, what he said was people confuse climate and weather. And how he describes it is climate is really like the temperature of your body, which if it goes up by even a degree or a couple degrees, you could die. Right. So, you know, when you hear stuff like it was one degree warmer... You're like, I don't give a shit. Because you're thinking of the difference between 76 degrees and 77 degrees, which is the weather. I can still wear shorts. That's all that matters. But if the climate alters by one degree, you have serious, serious uh, different weather patterns, more hurricanes, more typhoons, and that could destroy millions of people's lives. Well, not with the way we handle hurricane recovery. I'm pretty sure we are prepared. In fact, uh, they don't call us the U.S. of Levier. For nothing. We are known for our levies and for our non-racist rescue policies. You seem to be misunderstanding basic history and also the name of the country. Scientists at the University of Miami say Greenland's ice is melting so quickly the land underneath is rising at an accelerated pace. 
According to the study, some coastal areas in Greenland are going up by nearly one inch per year. And if current trends continue, that number could accelerate to as much as two inches per year by 2025, says Professor Tom Dixon, professor of geophysics at the University of Miami. It's been known for several years that climate change is contributing to the melting of Greenland's ice sheet, he says. What's surprising and a bit worrisome is that the ice is melting so fast we can actually see the land uplift in response. Even more surprising, the rise seems to be accelerating, implying that melting is accelerating. That's what Louisiana needs is get some of that ice to melt so the land will rise. Wouldn't that? Dayline Berkeley, vegetation around the world is on the move and climate change is the culprit. Vegetation is on the move? They can move? Wow. They seem to look so still when I stare at them. According to a new analysis of global vegetation shifts led by a UC Berkeley ecologist in collaboration with researchers from the Department of Agriculture, published a paper in the journal Global Ecology and Biogeography. The researchers present evidence that over the past century, vegetation has been gradually moving toward the poles and up mountain slopes where temperatures are cooler, as well as toward the equator where there's more rainfall. Moreover, an estimated one-tenth to one-half of the land mass on Earth will be highly vulnerable to climate-related vegetation shifts by the end of this century, depending on how effectively humans are able to curb greenhouse emission, greenhouse gas emissions. Okay. If I'm a betting plant, I'm betting, take me to the equator now. The results came from a meta-analysis of hundreds of field studies and a spatial analysis of observed 20th century climate and projected 21st century vegetation. Northern California's two great marine sanctuaries in nearby coastal regions will be severely threatened by the planet's changing climate over the next several decades as the sea level rises. The ocean water warms, marine animals migrate, and coastal storms and erosion intensify, according to a panel of scientists. They've been studying the issue for the past two years in a report that sea level at the mouth of San Francisco Bay has already risen nearly eight inches in the past century. They noted that the most recent estimates of global warming's impact on the ocean off the California coast indicates a sea level rise of 29 inches in the next 40 years. The effects of this rise will play out everywhere, says John Largier, a UC Davis oceanographer. Some ocean species are already adapting to warming waters off the coast by moving northward. Like the pl- well, they're following the plants. Wouldn't you? For example, gray whales, which normally give birth in the warm lagoons of Baja, California, are beginning to move calving grounds northward. Some whales have been observed giving birth as far north as the waters off Monterey County, just south of San Francisco. There's more and more evidence of rapid adaptation by marine life to changes in the climate, says Largier. But as changes grow greater, adaptation will end, and how much we will lose along the way we can't predict. Sea levels may rise by as much as one meter. I have no idea how much that is. Before the end of the century, according to new predictions, melting glaciers may contribute more to the rise in sea levels than scientists have previously realized. And the Himalayan glaciers that feed Asia's five largest rivers are in no danger of disappearing by 2035, as claimed in the Climate Change Panel's most recent report. In fact, only the glaciers that melt into the Ganges are shrinking, according to the most detailed analysis yet of how climate change will affect Asian glaciers. So, a little good news there, unless you're living on the Ganges. So if you're ever feeling down, grab your purse and take a taxi to the darkest side of town. That's where we'll be. You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestofleft.com. 
You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for, or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. The images coming out of Pakistan are sure hard to watch. Already one-fifth of the country is underwater, more than 1,500 have died, and millions upon millions of people rendered homeless. This kind of flooding has been predicted by global warming scientists for two decades now, and it's obvious that crisis is upon us. Well, not really us. Not us living here in the U.S. unless you're in New Orleans, and that's the problem because the vast majority of the suffering that global warming is causing falls squarely on the backs of the poorest people in the third world. They didn't create global warming, we did, but they're suffering for it. And that's why a cry has arisen from the third world for the West to pay a climate debt or climate reparations to those who are suffering now and who will be suffering in years to come from global warming. It's a cry that ought to be heeded, just as the cry from those caught in this devastating Pakistani flood must be heeded. And these cries, they must be heeded now. I have seen peace. I have seen pain. Resting on the shoulders of your name. Do you see the truth? Through all their lies. Do you see the world? Through troubled eyes. Today's story is called, Lose 300 Million Tons of CO2 in Just Three Weeks, a great way for businesses to shed excess carbon, The Humble Diet Diary, and it's written by Kate Shepard. I've been known to indulge in a few potato chips now and then, and by a few, I mean the whole bag. But it wasn't until my doctor asked me to keep a diary of my dietary habits that I began to realize I might have a fried potato problem. It's one thing to mindlessly munch on kettle chips while watching the cast of Glee bust out a racy rendition of salt and Pepper's Push It. It's another to document every single indulgence for the inspection of your disapproving doc. As it turns out, the Diet Diary is a tried-and-true weight loss technique, as a 2008 study in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine discovered. It worked for me. After two weeks of guiltily recording every time I popped a Pringle, I started eating a lot more carefully. This simple tool may be useful for tackling problems more momentous than my potato chip habit. Take the heat-trapping greenhouse gases that are changing life on Earth as we know it. As it happens, a collection of agencies and regulators are about to require large swaths of the economy to record and disclose their emissions, basically the equivalent of a carbon diary. Could the country's biggest polluters be shamed into going on a greenhouse gas diet? Soon, major emitters that account for roughly 85% of the country's greenhouse gas output will be required to report their emissions to the Environmental Protection Agency. Electric utilities, oil and chemical refineries, major manufacturers, and iron and steel producers will start submitting data by 2011, with heavy-duty vehicle and engine manufacturers to join in the following year. And any public company, from banks like Bank of America to department stores like Walmart to software companies like Microsoft, they'll all have to report their impact on the climate, as well as potential liabilities arising from global warming under new guidelines from the Securities and Exchange Commission. 
A growing number of businesses are even fessing up voluntarily via initiatives like the Carbon Disclosure Project, whose 2,500 member companies document both their own emissions and potential financial risks arising from environmental changes. The model for the new wave of carbon disclosure rules is the Toxics Release Inventory, which was created by Congress in the 1980s to discourage the use of harmful chemicals in industrial production. The program didn't force companies to cut back on the chemicals they released. Amendments to the Clean Air Act would later do so. It simply mandated that they document them. But then something unexpected happened. When the first year's worth of data was released in 1987, it made the front pages of newspapers around the country. Chemical manufacturers, oil refiners, and paper mills—it turned out—had pumped out nearly three billion pounds of toxic air pollution that year, and the inventory identified the worst offenders. Richard Mahoney, CEO at the agribusiness giant Monsanto, which had released 374 million pounds of toxics into the air over the preceding 12 months, vowed to cut the company's toxic emissions by 90 percent over five years. Our overall goal is zero effect on public perceptions, Mahoney told Financial World. In the first year of reporting, from 1987 to 1988, toxic releases dropped by 548.8 million pounds. Between 1988 and 1989, they fell by another 720.8 million pounds, a 19 percent decrease in just two years. Some companies really didn't know what they were emitting," said David Doniger, climate policy director at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Others didn't want to lose the perception of being clean. The principle at work was what psychologists call social proof, the human tendency to adjust behavior to those around them. Companies, like people, don't want to stand out for the wrong reasons. Early adopters of carbon disclosure credit the practice with helping them identify bad habits. 3M, maker of the ubiquitous Scotch tape as well as other adhesives, building materials, and medical and office supplies, started counting and disclosing its greenhouse gas emissions in 2002. In the process, it discovered that its thermal oxidizers, which are used to keep hazardous toxics out of the air, were responsible for a significant portion of their carbon emissions. By adopting a new system, the company was able to cut emissions 54 percent by 2006, says 3M's manager of environmental initiatives and sustainability, Keith Miller. Putting emissions data in the public domain can also bolster legal efforts to tackle climate change. In 2005, lawyers for a group of states suing electric utilities over their carbon output used EPA records to calculate the five biggest polluters: American Electric Power. Southern Company, Synergy, now merged with Duke Energy, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and Excel Energy. After losing in district court, the states won on appeal. The utilities, however, are seeking Supreme Court review. Expect to see more such lawsuits. The various new disclosure rules under development will gather data from many more companies and make it widely accessible. Of course, just as a diet diary alone won't magically evaporate unwanted pounds, carbon disclosure alone is not the answer to our over-emitting problem. But if my potato chip consumption is any guide, it's a surprisingly effective place to start.
So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55 a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. The climate bill, turns out, shockingly enough, will not become legislation. Who could have seen that coming? Cap and trade uh, shot down. Uh, expansive uh, climate uh, legislation shot down today. Harry declaring not doable in the Senate. Now, who told you that was going to happen? Look, look, I, part of the reason I brag about stuff like this is because, let's keep it real, I enjoy it. <laughs> okay? The other part of the reason, though, is that it has a real purpose. So that when I tell you later, hey, this is the direction they're going to go, I'm not making it up. Okay? I'm basing it on evidence. I'm basing it on things that I read. And I try to present that evidence to you, right? And I knew that this never had a chance. The initial vote, uh, preliminary vote they took out in, in the Senate months ago, actually it was I think over nearly a year ago, was devastating. It, was, it wasn't even close to 60, right? And it's not, and right now Harry Reid says in his announcement, all oh, those damned Republicans, if it weren't for those damn kids, I'd have gotten away with it all along. Right? Those rascally kids. Uh, well, that's not true. I saw the preliminary vote. A lot of Democrats were opposed to it. And again, on cap and trade, I've read all the stories. Uh, the so-called conservative Democrats, centrist Democrats, who are in reality, of course, corporatist Democrats, were never going to go for the bill. It never had a chance. And now, the other thing that added to its problems was that if you noticed in a lot of the clips we played, when the Republicans are on TV, they say, ah, you know, cap and trade, and you see how these Democrats and the government takeover, like Obamacare and cap and trade, as if it already happened. So they keep beating up the Democrats over it, so the Democrats, being Democrats, got scared, right? So they say, oh my God, they're criticizing us for cap and trade, oh, and we can't get the corporations to sign off, oh, okay, forget it, it's done. They killed it. So, sad day. <laughs> totally predictable, though. I, you know what amuses me, though, is I, when I go on to some progressive websites, and God bless their hearts, some people are hopeful, you know, and they're like, oh, yeah, Jag, you love to talk smack about Obama, but wait till he does cap and trade. <laughs> Come on, you must have no idea what's going on in Washington, D.C. None whatsoever. So, by the way, don't, don't fear. They're going to do... Uh, um, legislation on energy that is a little less ambitious, they say now. So they got to pass something. They got to hang the banner, right? So uh, I will tell you, based on what I read, I'm not making it up, okay, uh, what I think will be in the bill, okay? So uh, they will be tough on BP, so they can say, you see that? We took that BP sons of bitches to town, and we took them to task. We're so tough on the oil companies and the energy companies. And then they will sweeten that up a little bit 
with a bunch of giveaways to the energy companies. Subsidies uh, for uh, new alternative energies and green energies, and we want to you know motiv motivate them to go in the right direction. Wink, 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 wink. Okay, and then you'll know if the bill passes, and if it, especially if it passes comfortably. If they get Republicans to vote for it, that means they give away a tremendous amount of money to the oil companies and the energy companies, because if they don't, they'll never get a single Republican vote. And they need the Republican votes, and they need those corporatist Democrat votes, especially right before election time. And the Democrats will think, perfect. We don't get beat up on cap and trade. We hang another mission accomplished banner sign as if we did something. We appear to be being tough on BP, which is big in the news. And we get the corporate donations anyway. Everybody's a winner. So you can look forward to that wonderful piece of energy legislation a little later. Anyway, a new report has revealed that there is a significant risk that global production of conventional oil could peak and decline by 2020. Now, this has caused some panic because it turns out that 2020 is in most people's lifetimes and is therefore a very serious issue. If it wasn't until a year like 2120, then that falls very much on the not-my-problem pile and becomes a surprise gift to be unwrapped by future generations along with the issue of nuclear waste storage. For a start, Andy, whose fault is it that we're running out of oil? Is it not the fault of animals? which are not dying and decaying quickly enough. <laughs> Come on, antelopes. My new headphones need some shrink wrap. Get down and break down. <laughs> See, I'm going to have to wait a few billion years for that. It's most, mostly plant matter, anyway. Let's we'll chuck a few animals in there. Probably make your car go faster. There you go. Literally a bit of tiger in your tank. <laughs> you are not telling me that antelope oil would not be better. You're not telling me that. I think, actually, if you, if you have any spare vegetables in your fridge, if you just... Get your heaviest friend to sit on them for <laughs> there you go. ten thousand years. You might get a bit of usable oil. It's got to be worth. We have go. to take personal responsibility because the world's basic attitude, John, towards uh, this problem that a number of uh, academics and economists have warned about for several decades now. The basic world attitude has always been, nah, it'll be fine. Oh, it's a lovely day, what are you complaining about? There's always one miserable fly trying to shit in everyone's soup. Has oil <laughs> ever run out before? No. So you can't possibly know what you're talking about. People said the dinosaurs would never run out, and look at them now. Everywhere. Oh, sorry, I'm getting them mixed up with women. But the point stands. <laughs> exactly. The UK Energy Research uh, Centre study said that there is a consensus that the era of cheap oil is at an end. Uh, the US Energy Centre responded by saying, la 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 la, I'm not listening, la 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 la, I can't hear you. The UK Energy Centre in turn said, I said the era of cheap oil is at an end. The US Energy Centre responded, oh, sorry, what's that? I'm, I'm going through a tunnel. The UK Energy Centre retorted, no, you're not. You're sitting right in front of me. There will be no more cheap oil. And the US Energy Centre screamed, I didn't hear that. I didn't hear anything you just said. Then attempted to escape by throwing themselves out of a fifth floor window. <laughs>
<laughs> this is standard response, John. Whenever the oil problem is raised, world leaders stick their fingers in their ears and start reciting the lyrics to the hit song Build Me Up Buttercup by the <laughs> Foundations. As this transcript from a 2004 White House press conference reveals, Mr Bush, Mr Bush, what are you planning to do to secure energy supplies to America once global production declines? And Bush replies, and worst of all, worst of all, you never call baby when you say you will, say you will, but I love you still. Mr Bush, that's not really answering the question. Is your foreign and environmental policy not sending America down a path of economic and cultural unsustainability? Well, that's an interesting question. Let me phrase my response in a slightly different way. Baby, baby, try to find hey, 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 a little time and I'll make you mine. Hey, hey, hey. I'll be home. I'll be beside the phone waiting for you. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Why do you build Fill me up? Fill me up, fill me up, <laughs> Oh, will you let me down? You're gonna push me around. I need you. <laughs> More than anyone, baby. You see? Have you got your album deal yet? It's catchy. That's the point. If you start, if any politician started singing that, even the most staunch environmentalist couldn't help but, but join in. <laughs> Why don't you? What are we talking about? <laughs> That's a great song, isn't it? That's a great song. One of the all-time greats. Uh, written by Mike Darbo. Was he Manfred Mann? Tell me that that was off the internet and not actually out of your head. I'm not, I'm not going to reveal that to uh, my, my sources. I think no. you've answered my question with that. <laughs> Uh, the new report also warns that most governments, including the UK's, uh, exhibit little concern about oil depletion. Well, for a start, no shit. And for a finish, well, here's the problem. You know, we love oil, Andy. We're addicted to it. We like making stuff out of it, setting fire to it, putting it in our cars, and pouring it over our supermodels for high-concept avant-garde fashion shoots. <laughs> we love it. And like is that any... what you're doing for your next fashion? <laughs> next GQ shoot. Of course it is. I'm going to wear a lovely dress and cover myself in <laughs> crude oil. I think if I was covered in crude oil, that probably the manufacturer of the clothes would imply that it didn't actually look worse than when I wore them for real. <laughs> the problem is also, like any addiction, you, you really can't see far enough to care about the long-term consequences. If you said to a heroin addict, you're not going to like this, but I think we've peaked our production of opium, and one day there will be none left. They're going to say to you, oh, that's interesting. Why don't we have this conversation after I've taken all the heroin that's in the world? <laughs> then you will have my attention. Then. So what will happen after uh, peak oil? Basically, demand for oil will outpace production. The price will then shoot upwards like a woman's eyebrows in conversation with Silvio Berlusconi. And then oil-based economies will collapse like a badly timed souffle. And this could lead to a number of things, including increased resources conflicts. And, you know, John, this, is, this has always been this, uh, this way. People always say wars are about the oil. You know, this is not a new thing. In the days before cars and heavy industry, petrol wasn't worth the ground it was still underneath at the time. In the Middle Ages, the horse, of course, was basically the modern-day car, yep. and the Crusades were about getting access to the world's most plentiful supply of hay. And as soon Back. as Saladin and the hay cartels in Ohek yanked up the prices, Richard the Lionheart couldn't get his arse over there quickly enough. <laughs> the Jesus pretext was as smoky as screens get. Uh, of course, cynics said the Iraq War was all about the oil, but it wasn't. As we know, it was about democracy, uh, giving democracy to the Iraqis. But the Iraqi cabinet democratically elected, were so grateful at being given the precious, if slightly shop-soiled, gift of democracy that they, in turn, very generously passed uh, the draft of a bill to open Iraqi oil to Western companies for the first time since it was nationalised in 1972 by the six-foot-two-inch former genocide enthusiast Saddam Hussein. Now, it was, this was a controversial bill uh, a couple of summers ago, and it was described by a journalist in the Asia Times as, quote, nothing less than the institutional raping and pillaging of Iraq's oil resources. Which is a bit histrionic, John, because if there's one thing we know about the oil 
industry. It is its scrupulous fairness in redistributing its wealth back into the communities whence That's it came. Right. That is why the people of Siberia own Chelsea Football Club. And it must be a source of real consolation to old Arkady Grigorievich as he comes back from another hard day at the refinery, sips on his nightly gruel, sits on what's left of his sofa, puts Sky Sports on and watched Andrei Shevchenko sitting on the bench for two years whilst thinking to himself, I paid for that. That's all the central heating I need. <laughs> That's right. The oil companies, Andy, very much practice trickle-down economics. But what is trickling down is urine onto the faces of the poorest people in the world. <laughs> the authors of this report also acknowledge that much of the data is unreliable due to the fact that countries and companies are notoriously reticent to talk about their oil reserves. It's just not a topic of polite conversation, Andy. It's what they say about dinner parties. Never ask people about money, religion or their oil reserves. <laughs> it's just vulgar. It's like a country's penis size. You wouldn't ask the highest-ranking male official of each nation to whip their schlongs out and flap them on, onto the UN conference table. Part of the attraction is the mystery. Well, I don't know, John, bearing in mind what you told us about your recent uh, effort on The Daily Show, it sounds like you're pretty much heading that way. You know? <laughs> Stop it. You must, have asked, you must have asked Clinton at your, at your special dinner. Didn't you? I did not not ask him. Right. Did you ask him in a physical way? I just asked him with my eyes, <laughs> with my stance, you know, with my attitude. And your tape the, measure. Yeah. <laughs> the UK government, for instance, very rarely mentions uh, the issue in official publications. We are repressed even about our own oil production. <laughs> we just blush and stammer like Hugh Grant, like a cartoon Englishman <laughs> in four weddings and a funeral. Ah, uh, the, uh, oil production, yes. Well, um, in, in, in the words of William Yates, uh, well, 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 one cannot have enough oil. Yeah, look, look at Corgi over there. <laughs> Bye. It's not just oil that's running out, John. The World Wildlife Fund report back in 2002 said that at the current rate of plundering, the Earth will be totally and utterly <laughs> by 2050. Now, I don't know if they use those exact words, but they might as well have done in their panda suits. They claim a third of the natural world has been destroyed by humanity in the last three decades, and only 15% of that can be attributed to Jennifer Aniston's notorious Rampage of Devastation tour in 1999. <laughs> but since then, since that report came out in 2002, well, the world basically is responded by scratching its collective nuts and thinking to itself, yeah, we probably should do something about that. Still, 2050... That's ages away. So what are the solutions, John, I guess, uh, when it comes to all these resources? One solution would be uh, stop breeding so much. Yep. That's not an option because, A, people like humping for whatever reason, and, uh, B, the Pope says that's not allowed. God, as we know, hates condoms. He doesn't know why. He's got a thing about balloons, too. Anything that's too stretchy makes him feel queasy. Uh, apparently, <laughs> apparently Zeus was the same. That's actually the best explanation for the Catholic's <laughs> position on birth control I've ever heard. <laughs> God gets nauseous around stretchy things. It's a phobia he's got. <laughs> he used to crack out an earthquake whenever he heard it. <laughs> that and cotton wool when it's pulled apart. Ooh, dear. So the worst-case scenario, John, is basically war, famine, fire, pestilence. Yes. Basically dusting off their jockey's gear and parading around the paddock like they really mean business this time. Uh -huh. And also... You know, the fifth horseman of the modern apocalypse, a squeeze on the budget for TV panel shows. And humanity will then be thrust into, quotes, a post-industrial stone age under this worst-case scenario theory, all of which, I'm afraid, cast serious doubts over the long-term future of the bugle. That really puts in perspective. I, I, I need it, John. It's the only thing that gets me out of the house these days. <laughs> and let's be positive about this. The stone age wasn't all bad, was it? You know, men were men and women were hot. Also, people didn't play their personal stereos too loudly in the Stone Age. There was no that's, Twitter. That's true. House prices were affordable. 
Um, they were. Very they were. affordable. Yeah. A lot of potential in a lot of those properties as well. Uh, you could paint yourself blue and no one would bat an eyelid. You know, they were much more open-minded about painting yourself blue in those days. So, you know, I'm not sure we should be so negative about returning to the Stone Age. You've made your f- point. And we need to put this in context, John. A recent report said that more than half of babies now born in the UK and other first world nations will live till they're 100. Now, is that true? That is true, yeah, oh, no. according to this report. And clearly, bearing in mind these looming problems of the resources of the world, they might live to 100, but they won't <laughs> want to. Everyone's going to start seeing that King Herod was just slightly ahead of his time. <laughs> now, you would have thought by now, we might have done something about it. But the problem is, John, we need to all collectively get off our asses. And until now, we won't get off our own ass until someone else is getting off their ass as well. And basically, the way the international community has dealt with the environment has been, you first, no, you first, OK, let's do this together, are you off your ass? Yeah, OK, right, let's negotiate, let's do one buttock at a time. One, two, three, hey, you didn't lift your buttock. Oh, well, I'm not doing it until you do. OK, let's hold each other's butts and push upwards at the same time. One, two, three. Don't Heat waves, like those that baked the Northeast in July, you don't mean in July, do you? Surely you don't mean in July. Yes, I do. Are likely to be more frequent and more intense in the future, with their efforts amplified in densely built urban environments like Manhattan. According to climate scientists at the City College of New York, Manhattan is subject to an urban heat island effect. Mmm. Urban heat island, welcome. Because its physical landscape is significantly different from the surrounding suburbs, says Dr. Jorge Gonzalez. This makes heat waves here more intense because Manhattan cannot cool off as readily as outlying areas. Factors that contribute to the urban heat inland island effect include energy demand, air quality, asphalt surfaces, and exhaust fumes. <laughs> Data connected by City College indicates that the during the first July heat wave, overnight low temperatures ran 10 to 15 degrees higher in Manhattan than on well, okay, so why are why is this happening? Climate scientists. Um, part of, uh, among the issues that they're going to address is the role played by climate change in the past and present as well as in the future. So, so far we just know Manhattan's hotter. Sweat it out, babe. Baby fish may become easy meat for predators as the world's oceans become more acidic due to CO2 fallout from human activity. This according to an international team of researchers. In a series of experiments reported in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I left that copy of it under the thing. The team found that as carbon levels rise and ocean water acidifies, the behavior of baby fish changes dramatically in ways that decrease their chances of survival by 50 to 80 percent. As carbon dioxide increases in the atmosphere and dissolves into the oceans, the water becomes slightly more acidic. Eventually, this reaches a point where it significantly changes the sense of smell and behavior of larval fish, says team leader Professor Philip Munday of uh, the Australian Research Council Center for Excellence for Coral Reef Studies. 
No, they do not have a center for mediocrity for coral reef studies, but they're thinking about it. Instead of avoiding predators, they become attached to, attracted to them. Talking about the baby fish, he says. They appear to lose their natural caution and start taking big risks, such as swimming out in the open with lethal consequences. A co-author in the paper says the change in fish behavior could have serious implications for the sustainability of fish populations because fewer baby fish will survive to replenish adult populations. Or they just got to get smarter larvae. Can you work on that, fish people? A new article published in the 29th uh, of July issue of the journal Nature reveals for the first time that microscopic marine algae known as phytoplankton have been declining globally over the 20th century. Phytoplankton forms the basis, the very bottom of the marine food chain, and sustains diverse assemblages of species ranging from tiny zooplankton to large marine mammals, seabirds, and fish. Says lead author Daniel Boyce, phytoplankton is the fuel on which marine ecosystems run. A decline of phytoplankton affects everything up the food chain, including humans. Humans, ladies and gentlemen. Humans. Humans. But um, don't worry about that. We'll get our food from somewhere else, won't we? I'm sure. I'm sure there's another planet around where we can get our food. Um, but wait, there's more. During an unprecedented uh, u- sorry, using an unprecedented collection of historical and recent oceanographic data, a team from Canada's Dalhousie University documented phytoplankton declines of about 1% of the global average per year. It's particularly well documented in the Northern Hemisphere and after 1950. Huh. And we translate into a decline of approximately 40% since 1950. The scientists found that long-term phytoplankton declines were negatively correlated with rising sea surface temperatures and changing oceanographic conditions. Well, we'll make fish. Soot from the burning of fossil fuels and solid biofuels contributes far more to global warming than has been thought, according to a new Stanford study. But unlike carbon dioxide, soot lingers only a few weeks in the atmosphere, so curbing emissions could have a significant and rapid impact on the climate. Controlling soot may be the only option for saving the Arctic sea ice from melting. If soot emissions were eliminated, more than a million and a half premature deaths from soot inhalation could be prevented worldwide each year. The quickest, best way to slow the rapid melting of Arctic sea ice is to reduce soot emissions from the burning of fossil fuel, wood, and dung. Ladies and gentlemen, can you do your part, please, and stop burning the dung? Really? I've been wanting to call you about this. This according to a new study by Stanford researcher Mark Jacobson. His analysis shows soot is second only to carbon dioxide in creating, uh, contributing to global warming. I thought it was methane. Mm-hmm. He said climate models to date have mischaracterized the effects of soot in the atmosphere. So soot's contribution to global warming has been ignored in policy legislation, he says. We have to start taking soot's effects into account in planning our mitigation efforts, and the sooner we start making changes, the better. Says. Uh, hi, this is Ken. I'm from South Carolina. And down here, there's not a whole lot of uh, liberal media to talk to listen to. So I found you on the internet and uh, liked it from the beginning. There's a lot of sources, some that I don't get to uh, hear a lot of. So that's good. It also has uh, introduced me to several other. Uh, podcasts and such that I have since gone to, so uh, I think uh, it's a great site, and that's why I contribute, 
and uh, keep up the good work and keep spreading the news. Thank you. Last winter it was when a series of terrific snowstorms blanketed the East Coast and the climate change deniers claimed proof for their silly and ultimately fatal ostrichism. Our number one story, as another wave of heat and humidity hit the East Coast and Midwest and Southwest and Russia. Funny how you don't hear the deniers deliberately mistaking weather for climate. You want climate? A piece of ice has broken off Greenland. It contains as much water as will flow through every faucet in America over the next four months. Oops! A literal ice island, a hundred miles square, four times the size of Manhattan, has broken away from the Peterman Glacier, which is one of Greenland's two largest remaining glaciers. This is the actual satellite imagery. You have to send up a crew to fix that. This, the animation of an ice island that will likely enter the Nares Strait, which lies be between Greenland and Canada, the ice island might eventually move south and block shipping, or it could break up into smaller pieces, or it could fuse with land. We'll ask our guests what relationship this event has, or potential relationship with climate change. But the Obama administration's current relationship with climate change is far more difficult to discern. The White House's top energy advisor says there's still a chance of climate change legislation this year, possibly during a post-election lame duck session. But it's hard to see how that happens when that very legislation has been shelved in the Senate because Democrats did not think they could get the votes. Let's turn now to the chief ice scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland, Dr. Jay Zwally. Dr. Zwally, thanks for your time tonight. Good evening, Keith. To call this a, a truly uh, gigantic chunk of ice sounds uh, silly, considering the enormity of what might be happening here. Put it in your own terms so we understand what we're dealing with. Well, you said a little while ago that icebergs come off of Greenland all the time. Mm -hmm. They do. Approximately half of the ice that leaves Greenland each year comes out directly into the ocean and icebergs. The other half melts on land. And this is a very big chunk. Usually we have a stability between the ice that's flowing down the glaciers. And in this case, there's a floating part of the tongue. What's happened is that the floating part has been getting thinner. Mm. We believe it's been getting thinner because of warming temperatures of the ocean that increase the melting. So by itself, this is not that significant but it's a part of a pattern that's happening in Greenland. We've seen dramatic changes in Greenland over the last 10 years. We've seen an increase in the melting, we've seen accelerating glaciers, and we see a loss of ice from Greenland each year compared to what's coming in. So the, the magic question here, obviously, is what are the chances are that this has some, uh, uh, that climate change has had some impact on this? I think it's 100% hmm. that this is a result of climate change. We see the temperatures rising in Greenland. The temperatures are rising about two degrees centigrade in 10 years. That's three and a half degrees Fahrenheit. The changes that are taking place in the Arctic and in Greenland, the global warming is about three to four times greater than it is over the whole world. Mm. So these are having dramatic impacts on the ice in Greenland, increasing the melting, accelerating the glaciers, and the sea ice in the Arctic Ocean has been getting thinner and thinner. Doctor, do you find in, in your professional experience here that, that part of the problem with this is that, number one, is that use, the unfortunate use of the term global warming instead of the more uh, encompassing term uh, climate change. But the other one that I always contend with is you can't talk to people about this because they don't seem to, to grasp that there is a significant difference between weather and climate, that a snowy winter does not mean that there is not global warming or climate change. 
Exactly. Uh, people are often very confused by this. The changes that take place from one year to the next are not that significant. It's part of the long-term change. When you start having warmer summers, most of the years, this 10 years compared to previously, mm -hmm. when you see these patterns of change, and I find more and more people that I talk to, especially when you go to the Arctic and talk to the people that live in Greenland, they can see the changes that are taking place. And many people now are beginning to realize that the climate of the Earth is very different in Washington, D.C., for example, than it was 20, 30 years ago. And speaking of Washington, D.C. and the climate of a different kind there, politics has often screwed up serious scientific concerns. Is there any way for the clarity of scientific facts to win out on this issue, do you think? Well, it's very frustrating as a scientist because so many people that I talk to seem to decide the science based upon their political beliefs. Mm -hmm. If they're conservative, they don't believe in it. If they're liberal, they believe in climate warming. And there's a lot of disinformation that has come out over the last 10 years. So many people have heard about natural variability. There is a lot of natural variability in the climate system. Changes that have taken place due to volcanoes, changes in the sun, but we're observing those things now. We know that the changes that are taking place now are not due to volcanic activity. They're not due to changes in the sun. We observe these and we monitor them. What is happening is that temperature is rising. We measure the temperatures, we see it rising, and all the models, the climate models, have very good predictions that match the observations. How much time do we have left before the predictions become reality and the politics become irrelevant? Well, they're already becoming a reality. Mm -hmm. The impact, sea level is rising. Uh, the rate of sea level rise is now about 12, 14 inches in the next 100 years. And that's about 50% greater than it was 10, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. These changes are taking place. And Greenland is contributing to sea level rise now. Small glaciers around the ocean, around the Earth, and the um, ocean expansion. These changes are taking place. We need to take this seriously and do something about reducing the greenhouse gases that go into the atmosphere. this week or the end of last week, uh, NASA um, uh, uh, announcing that we are, we have had the hottest, the hottest first six months, first six months ever, everywhere in the world, in the history of the world, yeah, except here in Los Angeles where it's been lovely. It's been nice, <laughs> yeah, actually. Exactly. I've enjoyed it. I hope yeah. it stays like this. No, it's been great. If this is climate change right. for LA, bring it right. on. Right, in fact, it's like 81 today and I'm complaining. I'm like, it's too hot. It is it's too hot. It's oppressively hot today. And it's that dry heat. <laughs> you don't quite feel the same. No, it's been, uh, it's been very nice here. So the hottest first six months uh, ever. But again, ever. Uh, the manipulative sort of right-wing uh, stance and the positioning and the 
it's not just stance and positioning. Well, it's more positioning than a stance. It's willful it, ignorance. Right. It's willful ignorance, but it's also it's ignorance, but it's also willful misdirection. It's willful deceit. Absolutely. When you get that, when you get the Drudge Report headlines and the sort of intentional blogging of, <laughs> look at this. There's a climate meeting and it's snowing. I know. <laughs> like that makes a difference. I mean, right. most climate models have predicted that Western Europe will be far colder than it is now because it's going to change the currents of the ocean, like the jet stream. Uh, which is what the that brings nice scientists. warm water right up by England and produces their rain and their nice temperate weather. And without it, it's hard to grow crops there because basically their weather would be the same way it would be in Canada, like you know, 600 miles north of Vancouver. And because these clowns have never read a climate report, or let alone a full-length story, or for all we know, taken a science course. Right. They presume that when they hear somebody like you who understands this say that that all of a sudden the climate scientists are changing their story to explain stuff when... They were never changing saying, their story. They've said this throughout. Even more alarming is they've come out in the last year or two and they said, yeah, the uh, incidence of solar radiation has been really low for the last 10 years. So it should actually be a lot hotter than it is now, but the sun's been, you know, hasn't been putting as much out. What does that mean exactly? Well, the sun, I'm reading the sun, that the sun basically minimum, it, a recent it puts minimum out radiation in radiance. cycles. Yeah. So you'll have 10 years where the sun is stronger, 20 years where it's weaker. Ten, you know, I don't know, I don't know the science as, it, as specific, just that it's been a lot lower lately than it has been, you know, in the 1960s or 70s. So essentially that to a cent is, is, that's been lucky for us. It's been it? lucky for us, and when it ends and you have more sunlight and more heat and more solar radiation coming from it, the Earth will heat up that much faster. Yeah, well, now you're changing your story. I'm not, I'm not changing my story. No, I know. It's Look, it's, it's, this is, these are serious life and death issues. I mean, you don't have kids yet. Cenk just had kids. When that kid's 30 or 40 years old, dude, it's going to be 2050. And we're going to be really hurting as a country if we don't pull our heads out of our, you know, rectums <laughs> soon. This show you, I just listened to about the mosque was excellent, and you are right. It is asinine that anybody is talking about it at all. I'm with you 100%. I stumbled across the podcast, Best of the Left, going through iTunes, looking for left-leaning <laughs> shows, because I'm not watching television. And I have enjoyed every moment of the show that I have listened to. Thank you so much. Hey, Jay. This is Avery calling from Hawaii. And I just wanted to let you know that your show, um, this last one about uh, um, made-up controversy from the right um, regarding the religions, um, it was not a waste of time because it sure helped inform me. I had someone in, um, approach me and and tell me, can you believe that they want to build a, a mosque over there on Ground Zero? And so I received this misinformation, and pretty much said, well, you know, that's a bunch of bull, and you know, and and um, I was very upset by that. After listening to your show, I realized that um, I had been sold a bunch of misinformation, and I believe that's how it gets spread. Um, <clears throat> I do think that. Uh, gotta celebrate diversity out there, and um, 
diversity in all ways and welcome anyone that wants to build anything that represents their um, uh, religious freedom or background or freedom of expression and everything. And, um, I'm so glad that you brought this controversy to light and everything. Thank you. Please keep on doing your show. Thank you. Hey, Jay, this is Seth from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I was calling in to tell you that I love the show. I've been listening for about two years, and uh, you've introduced me to the Young Turks, uh, as well as Citizen Radio, a few other shows, and, and I really love the show. It's well put together. And uh, I was calling about your question about the Muslim or the uh, Muslim Center up in uh, you know a few blocks away from Ground Zero. I don't know what's called. I keep forgetting, but it's definitely not the Ground Zero Mosque. This is a bullshit issue, and I think it's a shame that we've had to hear so many people spend so much time talking about it. And uh, you know, it's also unbelievable that our rights are still being stolen from us when Obama's in office. You know, this among many other things. And uh, I voted Nader, and I think it's time for some real change, not just pocket change. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks, of course, to everyone who called in on the new voicemail line. If you want to call in and leave a message yourself, the number is 206-202-3410. Now, of course, whether you call in or, uh, you know, contact me in some other way, I would love feedback on this new feature in particular. Uh, you know, of course, playing messages from listeners is brand new, so I want to hear from you guys on, you know, what works and what doesn't work and what you like about it, what you don't, how long they should be, where they should be in the show, and so on and so on. So if you have any thoughts about that, uh, contact me any way you like. I want to especially thank the people who either uh, wrote in or called to talk about the uh, the mosque episode, specifically saying that it wasn't a waste of time because they found it really useful. You know, I uh, you know I, I kind of mentioned in passing in the last show that I. I made the decision to produce the show even though I thought it was, you know, a completely BS issue. Um, but, you know, I really did consider not producing it. You know, I could have done other stories and I could have ignored it like I wish the media would ignore it. Um, but I decided not to. And thanks to you guys writing and, and calling, um, I feel vindicated, I guess, about that. And, and, I mean, like, I really had mixed feelings, like I was giving the story more legs, but um, but to hear from you guys saying that you really appreciate that it was used and, you know, that you were a little bit more informed about it by me, um, it was great to hear, you know, honestly, because uh, I, I had my doubts, frankly. I even got an email from a high school teacher who said that listening to my show uh, inspired him to bring up the, the mosque issue in his uh, in his class with his students, knowing that he had lots of conservative students who had, you know, but, you know, students who had really conservative parents. And so he's told them to, uh, you know, to go home, talk to their parents about the issue, and then come to school the next day ready to discuss. And so the, the kids were allowed to discuss and basically read their parents' talking points about it that they had gotten from Glenn Beck uh, that they then read in class, and then the teacher kind of turned the the entire issue around and gave a you know stirring speech to these you know thirty or so kids, to which they responded apparently you know really really well that you know they had been uh, they had been talked into the, these ideas by their parents, and uh, and this high school teacher was able to basically change a lot of their minds 
And so, you know, to whatever really small degree my show helped inspire him, I think I think he was probably going to do it anyways. And and then finally, I just was the the final straw that that pushed him into doing it. So if that was helpful, that's you know an awesome thing to hear. But enough on that. What I actually want to do today is uh, follow up on today's topic: climate change and oil, and so on and so on. And read to you actually, and I I don't do this often, but uh, the Onion. Of course, you guys are familiar with The Onion because I play clips from their Onion radio news on the show every once in a while. But, uh, but the, of course, they have a, a printed edition that's online. But uh, I actually picked up the printed edition here in Chicago. And they have one of the best pieces of fake journalism I have ever seen. I mean, they, they do this every once in a while they, where they just have a really stunningly good article that they, they write. And this one is titled Millions of Barrels of Oil Safely Reach Port in Major Environmental Catastrophe. So this is edited down a little bit, but I'm going to read, you know, a pretty decent chunk of this article to you. So it starts out, In what may be the greatest environmental disaster in the nation's history, the supertanker T.I. Oceana docked without incident on, at the Louisiana offshore oil port Monday and successfully unloaded 3.1 million barrels of dangerous crude oil into the United States. According to witnesses, the catastrophe began shortly after the tanker, which sailed unimpeded across the Gulf of Mexico, stopped safely at the harbor and made contact with oil company workers on the shore. Soon after, vast amounts of black toxic petroleum in the ship's hold were unloaded at an alarming rate into special storage containers on the mainland. From there, experts confirmed the oil will likely spread across the entire country's infrastructure and commit unforetold damage to its lakes, streams, and air. We're looking at a crisis of cataclysmic proportions, said Charles Hartzell, an environmental scientist at Tufts University. In a matter of days, this oil may be refined into a lighter substance that, when burned as fuel in vehicles, homes, and businesses, will poison the Earth's atmosphere on a terrifying scale. Experts saying the oil tanker safely reaching port could lead to dire ecological consequences on multiple levels, including rising temperatures, disappearing shorelines, the eradication of countless species, extreme weather events, complete economic collapse, droughts that surpass the Dust Bowl, disease, wildfires, widespread human starvation, and endless bloody wars fought over increasingly scarce resources. Noting that they have acted in strict accordance with U.S. laws and complied with the orders of federal regulators, representatives from ExxonMobil, BP, ConocoPhillips, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and Chevron have all denied responsibility for the disaster. So there you go. Once again, it takes the writing of a satirical newspaper to finally get to the actual truth of the issue at hand. Uh, as I said, I edited that down, you know, cut, cut out parts of it, uh, but I certainly recommend reading the whole thing. The title of the uh, article again, Millions of Barrels of Oil Safely Reach Port in Major Environmental Catastrophe. If you search for that on the Onion's website, you'll absolutely find it. So now before I go, I just want to thank a couple of members. Rhonda B. signed up for a monthly membership back on April 22nd, and Belinda F. signed up on August 8th and signed up for a full year in advance. So huge thanks to both of those members and all of the members who have signed up to donate on a regular basis to keep the show going strong. I absolutely couldn't do it without you and uh, certainly encourage anyone who's interested in, uh, in helping to keep the show going to either sign up for a membership, it's either $5 a month or $55 a year, it's even less than that, or, you know, one-time donations work as well. And, you know, honestly, like a $5 donation is really enough to, you know, get me excited. Like every every donation I get is uh, is a big deal. So, you know, whatever you can give to keep the show going, that it, it all makes a difference. It really does. 
So that's going to be it for today. Of course, also continue to uh, spread the word about the show. Tell all of your friends about it to stay connected to the show and spread the word online. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to get details about the show, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode. All of that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the support of the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. The now black and white, took apart a picture that wasn't right. Bitch burning on a shining sheet, the only maker that you want to Who take you out?